This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We are broadcasting out of Pistown, Washington, D.C. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. No newscast today. Instead, we've got an interview with investigative journalist Ken Klippenstein with The Nation. He's got uh, an explosive new story out about how the COVID-19 pandemic has finally reached the Department of Homeland Security and our uh, immigration detention centers centers on the southern border. Uh, it's a really disastrous situation that we speak to Ken about. Before we get to that, um, there is some big news. There appears to be a deal made with the coronavirus relief package in the Senate. Uh, this has not been passed yet, but it looks like it will be passed. Right, Sam? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Schumer came out, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, came out last night and said that a deal has been reached. They've they Then they expect a vote on it today. Mitch McConnell has given his blessing. And uh, so it will likely pass today, pass the Senate today. It still has to go through the House. And of course, it has to be signed into law by the president. But it looks like the 1.8 coronavirus stimulus package uh, is definitely going to pass the Senate later today. And we will keep our eyes on the news there and keep you posted later this week, I'm sure. Yeah, it looks like we will get our corona checks, although not uh, as big or as uh, in uh, frequency as the initial House plan had it. Um, we're also getting more details that... Uh, uh, seem to suggest this is shitty in a lot of ways in terms of a bailout and various carve-outs for uh, companies like Boeing that are in it. But yeah, as Sam said, uh, we'll, we'll explore this more and have more details on it on uh, future shows moving forward. If you've been following our previous shows, uh, it, it didn't deviate. It doesn't look like it deviated that much uh, from what we were talking about yesterday and the day before. Um, but yeah, it is it is a real shame that it's only going to be a one time coronavirus stimulus check. We also saw today from Bloomberg a report about how state unemployment agencies are just totally crashing under the strain of 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 this new cohort of people looking for unemployment insurance. And so getting a guaranteed two thousand dollars every month from the federal government for the duration of the crisis, I'm sure would go a long way to calm people's fears and anxieties about all the shit that's going on right now. Uh, but no, it's just going to be a one-time check. Yep. All right, let's get to our interview uh, with Ken Klippenstein. This is based on a report he just published on The Nation based on a not public internal document from the Department of Homeland Security that he received. Uh, I started by asking him about that. <laughs> A friend of mine in the intelligence community sent me what's called, it's titled DHS National Operations Center COVID-19 Placemat. It's kind of an overview of what the Department of Homeland Security is sort of seeing, and it includes a lot of stuff that's not um, public, or at least not yet public. Um, and what was sort of surprising to me about it was just the number of people that um, the Homeland Security Department has in self-quarantine. They've got um, 1,444, um, and this was from the 19th of March. It's now the 25th, so that's doubtless much higher. And in addition to that, it also notes that the ICE Health Services Corps um, has people across 10 different facilities in isolation, um, which, uh, of course, you know, that's a kind of nicer way of saying quarantine. Uh, it doesn't say why they're in isolation. Um, 
you know, it was reported shortly after I um, put this story out, um, ICE, uh, it was reported that at least one ICE detainee has um, COVID-19, which is of course not surprising. And I uh, go into it in the story, the conditions in these ICE detention facilities are really bad and kind of um, ideal for, uh, you know, spreading of these kind of illnesses. So, um, you know, experts have been warning about this for a while. Um, that that we have a sort of tinderbox scenario where we have these awful, you know, very close quarters conditions. In addition to, literally, they went on strike, I believe, uh, yesterday for not having literally any soap. Many of the detainees. So this is really, uh, I think, a disaster in the in the making. And it looks like the uh, ICE officials themselves are ready for this. That if there is a disaster in the making, they or if there is a disaster, they won't be able to claim that they never saw it coming because they've ordered tens of thousands of respirators. Is that right? Yeah. I saw a um, request by them um, posted in the government contracting website that publishes all this stuff for, I believe it was 45,000 masks. So this is not, you know, any sort of surprise um, to ice uh, while they're, you know, don't seem to be being public about um, the extent, not just of um, what's going on among their own, staff, but also um, many of these uh, detainees are in um, private facilities that are contracted out to ICE. So I think there's some games being played about, oh, that's not actually directly under our jurisdiction. You would have to ask a geo group about that or, you know, whatever the private firm is. So I think there's really going to be a lack of um, openness about how bad the situation is until it uh, unfortunately gets so bad, I think that they won't be able to um, hide it anymore. I saw a letter from Senator Warren to, I believe it was the uh, Bureau of Prisons, noting that uh, her, she, and some other Democratic senators had they wrote to Geo Group to ask them about their, uh, you know, their preparations for for the COVID pandemic, and they got no response. Yeah, this is a really nice illustration of why government ownership. I mean, you know, whatever criticisms one might have of the government, and in my reporting, I have plenty. Um, is preferable in in many, if not, you know, the vast majority of cases to uh, private ownership because there's a level of transparency. So, for example, as a reporter or as a citizen, too, you can FOIA um, government institutions and get them to there's at least the presumption of openness that they that they you know, have to release information. If it's privately owned, there's they can operate near total secrecy and they're under no obligation beyond just basic um, public relations considerations to to, you know, open up to the public like what the hell's going on. And, and I think we're really seeing this play out with DHS, Department of Homeland Security, that's the parent agency to ICE and Customs and Border Protection, who overwhelmingly rely on huge networks of private corporations and, and contractors to carry out, um, you know, at virtually every level uh, its mission. We saw in the uh, early stages of this pandemic, Trump administration officials uh, dangerously try to suggest that the uh, coronavirus is coming up from the southern border. I remember Ken Cuccinelli did a hearing in which, you know, we, he, he suggested we haven't seen it yet, but we're, we're keeping an eye on that. Um, certainly, uh, we've seen the administration not shy away from suggesting that disease comes from the southern border, which is why we need to lock down the border. Um, at the same so so I guess I could see a sick incentive in which the administration would want to to show these numbers, but at the same time, it's also an unfolding crisis in which a lot of people could die in their custody. And that includes ICE agents themselves who've been exposed to this. Um, 
I guess, are, are you surprised these numbers are not public yet? Do you expect them to be made public uh, for political expediency or because they just can't hide them anymore at some point? I think secrecy will be the name of the game for as long as possible. And I think there's a lot of incentive to um, hide things. Um, if only for, you know, the markets, um, they don't respond well to, you know, consumer perceptions of bad things being ahead. It seems as though there's overwhelming pressure, not just on, you know, the president and the White House, but also on private industry to downplay as much as they can, if only to keep consumer confidence up. But I'm really glad you bring up the point about Trump's rhetoric about, um, you know, diseases spilling into the borders, even though if you look at the map, um, embedded in my document, I'll tell you both internally and externally, the more um, rational parts of the national security apparatus are being very you know, open about the fact that um, there's very low incidence of um, coronavirus in Mexico um, and you know, south of the border versus the United States, which is far higher. Um, so that's sort of ludicrous on its face. But one of the most interesting parts of the document, which I don't think is getting quite enough attention because it's sort of complicated, is that um, at one point it describes um, I'll quote, I quote, uh, it describes what DHS is, what the Department of Homeland Security is doing. It says, quote, IA, INA monitoring for indications of virus-induced migrant flows or sick migrants intending to migrate to the U.S. for treatment. So, um, well, it's not particularly shocking that they're, you know, keeping an eye on that. What people might not know is INA stands for um, intelligence and analysis. That is a subcomponent of the Homeland Security Department that is actually the only part of it that's in what's called the U.S. intelligence community meaning um, it's essentially the spy branch of the DHS that has access to extraordinarily sensitive um, intelligence information. Um, for example, it might be NSA signals intelligence, um, human intelligence from uh, things like maybe even the CIA. So um, for them to marshal, uh, you know, such a sophisticated, um, you know, part of its, of its um, sort of institutional toolbox um, to to track these individuals, um, I think says quite a lot about um, the the priority that they're that they're placing on it. Earlier this month, uh, you published another document showing uh, customs and border protections plans for a pandemic, and in that document, there's a passage that talks about how lots of Americans will die, governments will be destabilized, CBP officers will be traumatized, but quote. CBP must continue to carry out its priority mission to prevent the entry of terrorists and their weapons, regardless of the circumstances, uh, end quote. Um, this document you have now shows that there's nearly 38,000 people that are being detained. So it sounds like they're involved in a lot more missions beyond just keeping terrorists and weapons out during this pandemic. Yeah, that's a good point. I um, One of the most sort of surprising and shocking parts of, um, you know, researching pandemic response law was realizing that there's very little distinction between a sort of um, pandemic in the sense of it being kind of a natural disaster, you know, something that just will happen sometimes. Um, there's very little distinction between that and it's being a sort of terrorist or, or, or you know, bioweapons kind of thing in the sense of the powers that it gives to the executive branch, um, you know, the White House, DHS, law enforcement, the intelligence community are, you know, um, basically, in, in many ways, very similar to the powers that they would get after a, you know, a very serious terror attack, like, for instance, 9-11. And I didn't know that. And I, you know, have a feeling a lot of people don't know that because this is really a public health sort of thing. I didn't think that they would marshal, um, you know, the extent of the um, surveillance state and um, the national security apparatus in the way that they're able to. How far Trump is going to go with that, we don't know yet. 
Um, surprisingly, um, he has actually not exercised a lot of powers that he could, but that doesn't mean he's not going to, or that he isn't quietly and we don't know about it yet. Speaking of uh, extraordinary powers, even under normal times, uh, CBP and Homeland Security and federal law enforcement agencies have a lot of additional powers very close to ports of entry within something like 100 miles of, of land borders. Uh, law enforcement can do some extraordinary things to, to people, even in normal times. Are you getting ind- any indication this is being ramped up now uh, under COVID, given the, the sort of things that you and Sam were just discussing? Um, certainly surveillance uh, measures are being used. What I mentioned before, intelligence and analysis, that really, to me, was the most acute indication of that they are using um, you know, very serious surveillance powers. Intelligence analysis is going to have access to the sorts of... Um, uh, intelligence uh, apparatus that you think of when you watch spy movies, you know, as I said before, human intelligence, signals intelligence, things like that. And that's a very high level of sophistication for essentially just <laughs> trying to see, you know, is someone sick? Um, and so, as you say, uh, this is, uh, you know, both cause for concern and something I, I do think the government has to have some kind of role in in the response. But when you have um, a president that we do uh, who approaches immigration, you know, in a very hardline fashion, um, I do I do think that 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 should raise a lot of concerns because um, under quarantine law or pandemic law, one thing that's unique about it is it's one of the only areas of law where the government can detain someone uh, who has not been accused or suspected of a crime or, or shown to have carried out a crime. Um, and you know we can have a debate about that, but that debate is going to have to take place in the backdrop of this presidency that has you know very clearly <laughs> exercised executive authorities, um, perhaps uh, not in the. <laughs> best interest or, or, or purely in the perceived interest of the, of the, of the country, let's say. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that is, I think that is very concerning. Just a little pseudo correction, uh, not really a correction, but just more context to the letter I was talking about earlier about, uh, geo, the private prison company. So they did respond to the democratic senators, uh, but they did ignore their questions and basically just deferred them to the uh, Bureau of Prisons. And in this actual uh, letter that Elizabeth Warren and a bunch of senators wrote to Michael Carvajal, who's the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons, they noted that they included the letter from Geo Group uh, attached to their letter. They didn't actually publish it, but to FOIA heads out there, if you want to look for this Geo Group letter, the Bureau of Prisons definitely has a record of it, so you can probably try to get it. That's a that's a great illustration of the workaround you get when you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on with uh, this sort of public-private, um, you know, I think deal with the devil that that uh, we've made over the past several um, decades. Is it's never clear, uh, both to reporters like me, what exactly falls within the public domain and the private domain. And I should add, a lot of experts don't even seem to know. It's very it it complicates things enormously, and and I think that the sort of Net effect is the public ends up not knowing exactly what's going on in, in many cases. And um, it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, you have, <laughs> you know, like, a, it, for example, in Iran, they released something like 85,000 prisoners with the understanding that the conditions that they're in uh, pose a public safety risk, not just to the prisoners themselves, but to, you know, the general public. That's also true here, but you're not seeing that kind of a response. Um, of course, you know, prisons generally, the conditions are bad, but when you look at ICE facilities and CBP facilities, um, their own agencies um, have uh, issued a report, I think about a year ago, 
that found um, you know, horribly unsanitary conditions that go beyond even what you'd see in the um, federal prison system, which wasn't uh, great to begin with. So this is really a ticking time bomb. And um, it's not just, I mean, I would hope people care about the immigrants, but even if they don't, this is a threat to you know, anyone in the country um, in any sort of proximity, because that could spread very quickly uh, through these facilities and then, and then to the rest of the public. Well, I don't mean to uh, make light of uh, uh, an obviously grim and dire situation, but are we the baddies? <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's great when, um, you know, um, Iran is, is uh, pursuing a sort of more <laughs> libertarian uh, response <laughs> with respect to, you know, releasing all these prisoners <laughs> than, than, you know, many states in, in the U.S. Um, that, that does not seem very um, encouraging. But, um, yeah, things are being mismanaged to an absolutely insane degree. And unfortunately, it feels as though um, much of the planning is sort of reacting to things as they happen instead of, um, you know, sort of anticipating what might happen even just weeks from now. So, yes, we are the baddies. Ken Klippenstein, <laughs> investigative reporter at The Nation. You can follow him on Twitter at Ken Klippenstein. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, great to talk to you guys. Thanks again to Ken. We'll be back tomorrow with a brand new show. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.